Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about an amazing true crime podcast. Jamie Snow is serving life in prison for a crime he says he didn't commit. Now, listen as he tells the story from Stateville Prison in Crest Hill, Illinois, in the Snow Files. Season 1 focused on the trial and presented new witness evidence and taped interviews never before revealed, while Season 2 covered forensics. In September, a judge ruled Jamie should be given nearly 8,000 documents that were withheld from him and his attorneys. This is the first time he has received relief in 22 years. The final season of The Snow Files, which is now available, wraps it up with a deep dive into the alternative suspects and other wrongful convictions in McLean County that were presided over by the same state's attorney. Together with co-hosts Bruce Fisher, Tammy Alexander, Leslie Pires, and Ray Wilson, listen to Jamie tell a story about his wrongful conviction guaranteed to make you laugh, cry, and shock you to the core. He not only tells you his story, but he interacts with listeners and answers questions. New episodes of The Snow Files are released every other week, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Or download Jamie's case files and listen directly at snowfiles.net. My name is Charlie Moss, and I've been a freelance journalist and writer for more than 10 years. I've written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, and other publications. I also used to work for an online camping magazine called The Dirt. It was there that I wrote about a haunted campground just outside of Stanton, Virginia. The more I dug into the story, the more I realized that this wasn't just a simple Halloween ghost tale. It was something much deeper, much more profound than I ever imagined and I've spent the last three years finding out as much as I can about what happened at Braley Pond. This is episode six, The Shadow People. So this thing is more of a, it feeds on soul energy. That's what it's after. It needs soul energy, it's collecting these souls, and, and so you could imagine all those soldiers out there, all these dead, lost souls. This thing is out there feeding on it killing the life, the energy, and the essence of these former people. So remember when Logan Gwen messaged me on Facebook about the shadow people? What you just heard was him describing them to me in a phone interview I did with him. And I gotta say, everything he told me was incredibly entertaining. And we'll get to all that here in a bit. But first, a little background on Logan and what he, you know, does. Logan and his wife, Brent, aren't originally from Stanton. They moved into the area in 2018, and as of this podcast, have since moved back to Florida. Logan tried to break into the Stanton paranormal community by offering a little more flair to his ghost stories, and a little bit more controversy. You'll see why as you hear his story. Well, like everything else, there's always a story that starts everything. You know, it's, it was a dark, scary night. The rain was crashing. The lightning was flashing. You know. Oh, God, this is crazy. So, like, growing up, Logan was very much a freaking poltergeist movie in the making. Everywhere that I seemed to be placed because my, you know, I got separated from my, my parents when I was a kid because they were naughty people. They beat each other up and, uh, yeah, so they ended up going to jail. So I went to my grandparents 
and I grew up on the farm with them. And they have one of those, oh, God, really old speakeasy. You know, like uh, old speakeasy basically is what it – that's what their house was at one point, you know, back in the, like, early 20s. And this house of horrors is what they basically were living in. No one really knew it. That's Logan, in case he's talking in third person threw you off. And, you know, I'm – seven, six, seven years old, and I saw people, things. They weren't really people. They were more like shadows, you know, but I I can identify them as somebody was moving around. And, yeah, as a kid, that's some scary shit. Logan describes to me seeing this old woman, this dark, mysterious figure that followed him throughout the house. And she was stalking me. Because apparently I could see her, she could see me. And that's kind of how this this all starts. So she was coming in, and it was scary. And then she would get on me and get on top of my chest. And I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't cry out for help. And I just, at some point, I, I grabbed her head. When I did, I virtually absorbed that that energy, like absorbed it, like a vacuum cleaner. Like, I don't even know how it works, but I know that <laughs> this is how it started. And it was this ungodly, shrieky scream. And after that, you know, of course, I told my grandma about it, you know, and I was like, I, I was really scared because I personally felt like I killed someone, you know, as a kid. Logan's grandmother alerted her pastor about her grandson's confrontation with the elderly shadow lady. You know, me going to this pastor and he's asking me these questions about, you know, like, did did they ask for me to join the service of Satan? That's what really awakened me. But it didn't stop there. Logan became more sensitive, similar to Shay. But it wasn't other energy he was picking up. It was full-blown apparitions. He would see men and women dressed in 1920s clothing and hear them talking. Remember, Logan said earlier the house used to be a speakeasy. But it wasn't just murmuring he could hear. He could understand what they were saying. So I would go to my grandmother and tell her about this. And she didn't know at first that the house was an old speakeasy. My grandfather had an idea that that's what it was, but, you know, he just kind of moved on. So the more I talked about it, the more they were like, you know what, this is really strange. And doing the backstory, learning about the property, there was 15 people that were murdered on on that property. Wow. (laughs) So, you know, like, and I'm picking up these ghosts. And, you know, these echoes from the past, these lost souls, these people who um, were reaching out. Some wanted revenge. Others wanted answers. Where am I? Like, I don't understand what happens. You know, I, I was here. I remember this guy and then poof, um, you know, so they were lost souls. Identifying that. As a child and and growing up in it, I had a lot of curiosities, a lot of questions, and 
I was learning through the experience of these ghosts. Through these experiences, Logan tells me, he learns the differences between the different kinds of ghostly entities that exist in our world. So I learned the difference between what a free-roaming spirit was versus an interdimensional, these shadow beings, and most people consider those demons. But there's a lot more of a classification in the realm of what makes something a demon or what makes something sentient or, you know, what makes something a lost soul. That's what got me started. And as I progressed through the years and I got exposed, because, again, we're talking exposure. So you have to get exposed to things to understand something. You can't run from it. Can't be like, oh, we don't talk about no demons around here because you awaken a demon. Well, that's that's fine. Awaken a fucking demon. Do it because we need to understand what it is, why it is, how to defeat that enemy. You have to know the enemy if that's the case. And you start finding out that not every bad entity is a demon. You start learning that. There are these interdimensionals, things that are out in this unknown universe. Speaking of interdimensional, here's where we get to Logan's trip to Braley Pond and the portals he supposedly found there. Braley is a, it's an enigma. It's, it's like every time me and Bryn go out there, we find new stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an amazing conduit, but we got to break down what Braley Pond really is. And it is in a valley between two mountain ridges. And it's one of the largest watersheds for the Shenandoah Valley. So like everyone's drinking water comes from this place and yet <laughs> it's the best place to dump a dead body. Like uh, this is <laughs> this is a horror story just waiting to happen. You know, like isn't this how Jason Voorhees started? You know, like, but with Braley, it's out of the classic Virginian urban legend. So you're, you're in the middle of this woods. You might notice how much more dramatic Logan's description of Braley Pond is compared to everyone else's in this podcast. Like I said, he's got quite the flair. It's such a strange element because you almost feel like you're in the Blair Witch. You're surrounded by all these woods. Yes, there are people that do live back there, but in the deeper parts of where Braley Pond, we're talking about the, the dynamics of, you know, where this kid's body got dumped. Now, he didn't get murdered there at Braley. They just dumped his body. Now, despite everything you've heard, this was the first piece of information that stuck out to me. The speakeasy ghosts in Logan's grandparents' house, or the shadow people, or the interdimensional portals. It was that he said that Christopher Kennedy wasn't murdered at Braley, that his body was just dumped there. He was, in fact, murdered there. He was. All of the news reports clearly say he was murdered at Braley. There was no guessing on Logan's part. He stated it as a fact, as if I didn't know any better. As if he didn't know that this was what my entire podcast was about, which bothered me. I didn't correct him because I didn't want to mess up his flow. Made me start to question, though, some of the things he was telling me. So with Braley, there is a lot more than just 
Spook Central in the middle of this nowhere place. It almost seems to be this conduit of just life energy, like this, this, it's a beacon. So you have a lot of, there was a lot of Civil War conflict, of course, that took place in these here hills. And there's a lot of soldiers that lost their lives there. And every time me and Bryn go out there, we, we run into all kinds of, well, interesting fellows, you know, soldiers that don't know that they're dead. They're still living in that very moment. So they're stuck in this repetitive cycle of what their former lives were. And they're just out doing what they're supposed to be doing. This was the second crack in Logan's story. There were no Civil War battles fought at Braley. The closest battles I could find that were fought near where Braley Pond is now are the battles of McDowell, Cross Keys, Port Republic, Piedmont, and Waynesboro, which are all between 30 minutes and just over an hour away from Braley. Does he mean that these ghost soldiers traveled from miles away to Braley because it's a conduit of life energy, as he says? I'm not sure, but the way he refers to the soldiers that lost their lives there just raised another red flag for me. Anyway, let's keep going. We, Bren and I, are very much like ghosts to the ghosts. They see us like we're grim reapers or something. They don't know what we are. They, they're in fear of us, and they usually just flee. So we have to convince them, you know, no, no, don't flee. Yay, come back. You know, we're not here to hurt you. We want to help. You know, talk to us. So it, it takes a minute for us to connect with the spirit. But once we do, we're able to go, oh, hey, I get it. You know, this, this guy's a lost soul. So there's a lot of soldiers out there. And I don't, when I say a lot, I don't mean like four or five. We're talking five to 10,000, you know, soldiers just kind of walking around. Okay. So again, five to 10,000 ghost soldiers making a pilgrimage to Braley from the battlefields where they died. It occurs to me that I have no problem with the ghost soldiers, but I'm sitting here disputing that they traveled miles and miles away just to go to Braley. So when we got pulled into the whole Braley element, we learned with, obviously, through some of the circles here in the psychic community, that one of the mediums from this paranormal group had gone out there and her and her friend had gotten attacked. Logan's referring to Shay and Chris Pugh here. Didn't know what they got attacked by, but it was pretty powerful. It was big. And when we heard the story, me and Bryn instantly knew that it was one of these Pleiadian, like, baddies. We knew that it was a shadow beast. We just didn't know that it had that kind of power. So we go out there to look into why is this thing here? Pleiadian? What the hell is a Pleiadian? So this thing is more of a, it, it feeds on soul energy. That's what it's after. It needs soul energy. It's collecting these souls. And, and so you could imagine all those soldiers out there, all these dead, lost souls. This thing is out there feeding on it. Killing the life energy and the essence of these former people. So, of course, Brent and I, we go out there, 
and we didn't understand how is this thing even here? Like it, it can't possibly come into our realm because it's an interdimensional. Right? That's pretty much they are not from this planet. You can call them alien, whatever. So let me stop here for a minute. We've gone from energy work to ghosts and now to other dimensions and possible aliens. I'm not quite sure what to make of Logan. Part of me wonders if this is all bullshit, if he's making all this up to get attention. I mean, he did seek me out, not the other way around. But the other part of me wonders if he actually believes this is true. Am I a fool for even listening to this guy? So we needed to identify how is it getting to this planet? Like, how is it getting access to here? <laughs> you know, and this friend of ours took us to a very weird spot in the middle of this Braley Pond. And it is in the center of everything. It's a very strange, unusual formation. So it's in the middle of all these saplings, these pine saplings, which for some unknown reason grew, you know, within inches of each other, towered up about 14 to 15 foot tall. And there is a perfect circle cut out of these trees. And we're not saying somebody went in there methodically and, and sawed down trees to make this perfect circle. There is this level of paranormal involvement. It is almost a key shape, an old school key shape, not like <laughs> today's keys, mm -hmm. you know, skeleton key almost. So it's this big circle with a you know large rectangle cut out of this these trees. It's incredibly interesting. So she leads us there, and we instantly recognize this as a portal. We know that it's a portal. We start moving the leaves, and we could see that this was not a man-made. Like this isn't something that people go out in the middle of the woods ritualistically and make this like this is not where you go and get you know like the lesser keys of solomon and learn how to make a portal this is something completely interdimensional so now that we understand where they're coming from we have to now try to shut this portal down so that way whatever is here cannot escape and whatever planet or star system they're from cannot reinvade. Logan explains the concept of portals to me, or at least his concept of portals. Portals are very connected to elements of nature with elements of energy. So if you take away the energy, you can shut the portal down. Of course, you've got to try to figure out, well, where's this energy source coming from? Because this, this woodland feels very dead. Like, there's not a lot of new life that's growing. Somehow these trees are surviving, but there's no new life. There's no birds. There's no animals. Like, it's a very scary, dead place. You just feel it. And so we had to figure out where this energy was coming from. The only true energy source there was all these lost souls, spirits. So we have to convince these spirits to 
go left instead of right. And there's too many of them. We're just overwhelmed. There's no way that Brent and I alone can go in and just collect every <laughs> every soul and run off with them. Like, we can't do that. So we decided to go to where the portal went into their world. And we made a Dybbuk box. I don't know if you're aware of what a Dybbuk is. I had no idea what a Dybbuk box is, so I later messaged Logan over Facebook after our conversation to ask him. Here's what he said, and I quote, In the Jewish community, the old scriptures of the Hebrew text trained rabbis how to trap demons. The ritual known as Dybbuk became part of their role and passed down. The Dybbuk box was the key to trapping the spirit. The Dybbuk box is a highly reflective surface inside. We use the mirrors to line the interior and we add trigger objects. The spiritual energy goes into the box and stares at its reflections for hours. Closing the box, sealing the seams of the lid and wax, placing the word of the Lord upon the lid, waxing or gluing it to the lid's face, wrapping a red silk across the box to tie it down, and then cast that box where no one can find it and open it. That is a debate box. End quote. He goes on to explain that certain rituals like sigil, which is a symbol used in chaos magic and other occult activities, can be used to trap spirits inside the Dybbuk box. But Logan doesn't bother with all that. He says, and I quote, I am more like Constantine when it comes to demons. He says, no rituals. Punch it in the face and toss it into a Dybbuk while smoking a cigar. I just hate wasting time with chance and bidding spells. Just grab the bastards and toss it in. Quote. Here's Logan again. But we made it Dybbuk and we put it into the portal itself. Now, once that Dybbuk went to their dimension, it locked it to where they can't get in. So we kind of like plugged up the hole. So now we know that these Pleiadians cannot enter again. So we shut the portal down. What the hell is a Dybbuk anyway? Here's what the oldest continuously published Jewish newspaper in the world, the London-based Jewish Chronicle, says about Dybbuk's. Quote, before the advent of modern medicine, it was believed that certain mental illnesses were caused by demonic spirits taking control of the afflicted person's body. In Jewish folklore, these spirits were called dibbuks. They came from the domain of evil. The person could not be cured until they were exorcised, sent back to where they had come from. The domain of evil is called, in Kabbalistic terminology, the Sitra Akhra, the other side. You'll have to forgive me if my Hebrew is a little rusty. An inversion of the divine world, it is the abode of dark forces, end quote. So can anyone make a Dybbuk box? It seems like someone on the holier side of things, like a rabbi, would have to create it, or at least bless it, for it to work. If we're talking about good versus evil, the righteous and the damned, right? To me, it just seems like, you know, if they actually exist, would be rare and require training. Like the Jewish equivalent of an exorcist. I scoured the internet for more information, and what I found first was the story of writer and creative professional Kevin Manis. Manis seemingly coined the phrase Dybbuk Box to describe a wine cabinet he was selling on eBay in the early 2000s that was previously owned by a Holocaust survivor in Poland. Supposedly, it had never been opened because a Dybbuk was locked inside. It had been bought and sold several times over the years, with several people claiming to have experienced strange occurrences when in possession of it. Manus himself said he had terrible nightmares while it was in his possession, before he sold it. His mother supposedly had a stroke the same day he gave her the box as a birthday present. If this story sounds familiar, that's because it inspired the 2012 movie The Possession. Manus's Dybbuk box is now on display in a Las Vegas museum owned by Zach Baggins, 
of the popular ghost hunting TV show Ghost Adventures. But hang on a minute. I then found this from Kenny Biddle on Skeptical Inquirer, the skeptic I talked to in episode 5. He addressed the Dippick Box in his Closer Look column in January 2019. This is what he wrote. Quote, Despite what various owners would have us think, the infamous Dippick Box is not a haunted Jewish wine cabinet from Spain, but instead a mini bar from New York. Biddle also wrote that he believes Manus created the Dippick Box story from whole cloth, as he says, and that, quote, This elaborate story that started the entire legend was not an account of real supernatural events but instead of fictional backstory, he came up with to sell an ordinary and incomplete minibar, end quote. Well, okay, that seems to confirm things. But I still wanted to be sure that maybe I wasn't missing something. Maybe there are others that folks like Logan use to capture spirits. So I asked Logan to provide me more info. One of the resources he sent me is a website called The Dippick Box Store, an online store selling, well, Dippick Boxes. This site doesn't make Dippick Boxes. It sells Dippick Boxes already in existence from collectors all over the world that range from $14 up to $180, come in various sizes, and are typically made from wood with wax to seal them. Each one is adorned with different objects that symbolize or are somehow related to a person who died, or is presumed dead, like small stones, fabric, and most commonly, an old photo, some of which are really disturbing. I won't go any further than that. Names of the victims are not revealed, and each box is shrouded in mystery as to the history of when the box was made, where it specifically came from, and the circumstances behind the death. I've got to admit, this site gave me the creeps as I browsed it, but I wanted to find out more about Logan's spirit capturing device. The Dippick Box Store explains that, in its simplest form, and I'm quoting here, these boxes serve as barriers between the living world and any force that should not be here. It goes on to say that there is no standard Dippick box, and the boxes either contain or are decorated with almost any kind of objects related to the entity or spirit it was made to capture, like hair, bones, burnt ashes, handwritten messages, and photos, as I mentioned earlier. So, did the whole Dippick box phenomenon start with Kevin Manis? Is it really all a hoax? The whole concept sounds ridiculous. I watched plenty of YouTube videos with people opening them just to see what all the fuss is about. Anyone can fake a demon possession or haunting with the magic of video, right? During the making of this podcast, I went down a rabbit hole. A rabbit hole like you wouldn't believe. Trying to learn as much as I could about the Dippick Box. In fact, I wrote an article for Input Magazine about it, and I talked to Manus himself, who told me this. Charles, I want to tell you something. I am, I am a creative writer. I have been a writer for a long time. The Dybbuk Box is a story that I created, and you were the first one to be told this. And to get complete transparency, I want you to know that after exactly 20 years, I created it. it it's my creative story, and the Dybbuk Box has done, the story of the Dybbuk Box has done exactly what I intended it to do when I, when I posted it 20 years ago. Which is what? Which is to become a, uh, a, an interactive horror story in real time. Make no mistake about it. I conceived of the Dybbuk box, I did the name, the term, the idea, and wrote this creative story around it to post on eBay um, for it to be an interactive real-time horror story. Those skeptics can now put the Dybbuk box story to rest. There are some people, like Logan, who will still believe in it. Here's Logan again, talking about hunting the creature that attacked Shay. 
When he mentions Black Raven, he really means the Shenandoah Paranormal Society, which is what Marty's group was called before its current iteration. Then we had to go on the hunt for this thing that attacked, you know, obviously the the crew of the Black Raven. And we did find one, but there were like two others out there that saw us and took off. So we still we still have to go back and, you know, get them. And every time we do go, we're always on the search for those other two little jerks. But they're very real. They're very strong, very powerful. And I don't think in the world of the dead that these guys are the devourers of the human soul. Did you catch that? Logan said he and Bren found one and that they saw two other shadow beings, but apparently they escaped. So there are three of these weird creatures of Braley Pond? Logan is a talker, which I appreciate. He eventually circles back around to the murder of Chris Kennedy. Can't really see it because too many people rely on you know, flashlights and what have you, but they don't realize that these are beacons that kind of draw the paranormal to you. So that's why it is the most haunted campsite in all of Virginia. So nobody wants to go out to Braley Pond. They're afraid that there's some demons out there and they don't want these demons to attack their, you know, Christian souls. What a great place to go dump a body, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because there's not people wanting to go there. So this case of um, Chris being dumped there, that was one of another multitude of other bodies that have been dumped. Okay, so again, Christopher Kennedy was murdered at Braley Pond. Not only was it confirmed by police in the hearing and in the local news, but also by Seth Tinsley himself. Now, Grant, we do know that it is the MS-13 group only because when we identify spirits, it's hard to identify a spirit because they're not attached to their bodies. So Chris was just dumped there. And... He, his soul is not there. So we had to kind of do some backtracking to figure out, okay, where did this go? How did this happen? Where is this? How did the, you know. So by backtracking, we ended up finding two sites where, you know, he was brutally murdered. And that's where his soul was. And that's how we know it was MS-13 related. We just can't identify true names. If we could get those names, you know, obviously the They'd get the guys. Does Logan think I'm an idiot? I'll forgive him for getting the name of the gang wrong, since the local press got it wrong as well. Christopher was a member of the Gangsta Disciples. But to say that local police haven't caught his murderers and don't even know their names when this is such a well-known case locally isn't a smart move. He knows this is what my whole podcast is about. If he's going to try to con me, he should at least do a little research first. So maybe I don't trust everything that Logan is telling me, but he does seem to be knowledgeable about the spirit world, or at least... He's a good storyteller. It's entertaining stuff, for sure. And I was still captivated by the idea that there are these interdimensional beings, these shadow people, or Pleiadians, as he's called them, who come to Earth through a portal and devour the souls of the dead. I wanted to know more. So I've got, I've got questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so with... So you're... When you 
when you talk about like a portal being a, a really pond, I, you know, this is just me and my lack of knowledge of kind of this world. But I think of like Ghostbusters and Zool and like mm-hmm. how that building was a portal to another realm, right? So, right. So as you'll notice, the only way I can make sense of everything I hear while making this podcast is to associate it with pop culture. Sorry about that. Where, you know, where does this portal go? What's the purpose of, like, the shadow people getting all this negative energy? And then, like, how many portals are out there? Is that something that you know? What we've learned so far about this particular portal is that this shadow gate, this portal, goes to a world of absolute darkness. It's in the middle of a deep void, and it is, at one point, it was a living world, but something occurred with their son. That world fell into darkness, it fell into shadow, and it's in a dark space region. It's not so much an interdimension or another dimension so much as it is intergalactic space. But their energy and their essence, much like on Earth, we have a outworld, which is where souls tend to go. So this cold, dark, dank planet is ruled by what we can call the Shadow King. And that's these are terms that I can only put into best definition mm-hmm. so we can tell a better story of what happened. So this Shadow King, our understanding is that that particular world, they were a world of hunters and warriors and they cruised the galactic core. You know, they were just these warmongers. And when they had a star do what it did, shattered, exploded, got pulled away, whatever happened, their world just suddenly died. Is everyone getting this so far? This portal at Braley Pond leads to a dead, dark planet that was once filled with hunters and warriors and is now ruled by a Shadow King. Okay, let's keep going. Their essence, their beings, what they are remained, much like a ghost. But because they were already interplanetary, they have the understanding of traveling through space and traveling through different, obviously, solar systems. So they understand it. They also understand how to make portals. And they use dark matter as a means of travel. So they have to make these connecting spots, this this raw, pure, negative energy to connect their world to ours. That's why we call them interdimensional, if that makes sense. Because that's the only way we can wrap our heads around this. It's a portal gate. So this shadow gate allows them to travel from their world to ours. Their purpose is coming here, they devour souls, they build up energy, and they take that energy back to their planet. We're understanding that it's trying to feed this shadow king 
to bring the Shadow King back to life. Like, I don't know if he's in a state of rest in a spiritual sense, but they're trying to give this Shadow King life so he can travel on a gate. And they want to bring him here. So the purpose of the portal is so that these shadow beings can come to Earth to devour lost souls, which they can then take back and feed to their shadow king, so it can travel to Earth. There are thousands upon thousands of these shadow gates, tendrils, stuck on this planet, just in all these different key locations. The areas that we can identify this particular portal, and we do, we did start a portal search a couple months ago, so we're looking to see how many more portals there really are out there, if anyone can identify them. Logan tells me that he and his wife, Bren, are working to identify all of these portals and then attempt to shut them all down. He explains what they're looking for as they track these portals. So our understanding is that it has to be nature. It can't be man-made structures. So that means we're looking for woods. We're looking for woods that have a lot of spiritual activity and a lot of war death, you know, things of that nature. So these are just basic prerequisites for what would make this portal work. So if it's isolated and it's away from a lot of people, that's going to make that portal really strong. If it's in a large community and people are aware of it, it's going to be a weak portal. What happens What happens when the shadow king comes to our world what happens then our understanding would be this that once the shadow king is here then you're talking about this multitude of possession and people dying and energy taking over the dead and not zombie apocalypse but we're just talking about these energy beings will invade the bodies devour your soul and basically take over the flesh. And that's kind of what we believe is their, their end game. How we got some of this, if you will, information is that when we got a hold of that Pleiadian, again, we're talking about, I have the ability to vacuum energy, especially negative energy. So it enters me and I kind of devour it. When I do, I take on its emotional state of mind, if you will. So I kind of got these impressions, almost like visuals of what was in its mind. I asked Logan why these Pleiadians, or shadow people, chose Bradley Pond to build their portal, or shadow gateway as he refers to it. As long as there's a large body of water, it is like a mirror. And if you have a mirror, you have a gateway. If you can have a gateway, you have a, a, a place for energy to converge. So when we looked at Braley Pond from a satellite view, there's some crazy weird structures going on around that body of water that even we can't define. But we know that that water is the reflective surface of the mirror. So we believe that the shadow gate requires reflective surfaces. You take away the water, 
you take away the portal. That's kind of in our head. That's what we thought. And in that concept, we then started thinking, well, what's the best thing to give negative feedback to a reflection? The reflection of the reflection becomes this infinite level of reflections. So it's almost like a trap, if that makes sense. So here's where Logan's Dybbuk box comes in. Remember, he and Bren decorated the inside of it with a bunch of mirrors. So their idea was that they capture the shadow being inside the Dybbuk box, which is inside the portal, then it's sent back to its own world. Is anyone else getting a Superman the movie Phantom Zone kind of vibe here? To recap, Logan and his wife, Bren, captured one of three interdimensional or intergalactic shadow beings in a homemade Dybbuk box, the same one he suspects attacked Shay back in 2003. Logan then sucked all of the negative energy from this Pleiadian being as a way to get the intel it was carrying, via the Shadow King, which was this. To travel to Earth, suck the souls of the living, take over our bodies, and rule our world. This takes the popular online theory among the paranormal community that all these hauntings could have just been the ghost of Christopher Kennedy to a whole other level. I know, I'm giving Logan a lot of shit here, mainly because he got his facts wrong about some easily accessible information and he tried to pass it off as truth. But still, he's a pretty fascinating guy. I mean, does he actually believe all of this? Or is this just part of the Logan Gwynn show? A way to attract attention to himself? I don't know, but it's piqued my curiosity. Stanton's ghost community may have shunned him, and with good reason, from what I understand. But there's no doubt I want to know more. After my conversation with Logan about Pleiadians and portals, I started asking other folks about it. Like, is this common knowledge in the paranormal community about Stanton? Braley Pond as an interdimensional portal that is a gateway for shadow people? Remember Curtis Lee Weimer from episode 5? He knows what I'm talking about. But his interpretation is a little different. We can talk about portals. Portals go one place and one place only. They go right to hell. They refer to something called, like, shadow people, and then, like, a shadow king, and, like, stealing souls and things like that. Which I don't know if that's, you know. Yeah, it's a soul. Well, it's a raper. It's a soul raper, yeah. Angel of death, basically. Okay, so Curtis seems to be on board with Logan's theory. So I asked Don Barry, too. She's the energy worker I talked to in the last episode who used to work with Marty at Black Raven, the woman Curtis referred me to. Um, When you start talking about um, portals and Pleiadians, I think some of these words are just kind of... um, they're, They're ways to define things based on different perspectives. And so when, I, when someone's talking about a portal, there's no standard definition of that. Science hasn't been like, so this is what that is. So it kind of depends on his frame of reference for mentioning that. Um, oftentimes a portal is the word used to define a place that has a very high level of energy and energy that functions sporadically. Um, would I agree that there's a portal at Braley Pond? I would probably not. But do I understand why that um, association is being made? Sort of. Because I would say that, that there is a very high level of energy in that area. Um, But anything about the Pleiadians or anything like that, I think that's a totally different 
um, a whole totally different conversation that doesn't quite go with Braley's pond. All this talk of Pleiadians makes me think of something Shay's son, Zach, mentioned during our phone call a few episodes back. Besides seeing Christopher Kennedy's ghost, Zach did experience another strange phenomenon back in January of 2009, when he was around 13, along with his siblings, Shay, and his grandmother, Jennifer. It involved these strange shadow creatures. We, growing up, had a thing outside of our house that we could never explain, and it sounds kind of far-fetched, uh, but it it basically it was a Jersey Devil, and it wasn't the chupacabra. It wasn't um, what the Mexican Spanish folk tales of it. It was a presence from another world, and it was things like uh, we never officially got to see it, but you would hear it. It had a it had blood curdling screams, like uh, almost mixed between a um, uh, a screaming woman and a train was how the only way that you can explain it and it never hurt us it never did anything to make us believe that it was going to hurt us but it it's it scared the hell out of us we had one instant that when my little brother was younger he was at the my parents went to see a movie some kind something about and he was maybe four or five at the time um and i was i was 15 16 I was upstairs in my my room, and my sister and my little brother were downstairs in our kitchen. And to, there was a door leading to our kitchen that led outside that had a big glass window uh, in, window in it. And my little brother, um, my sister said that my little he, she looked over at my little brother, and he was white as a ghost and stone still, and he wasn't moving. And when my sister went over to figure out what was wrong he started screaming just blood curdling screaming um saying that there it's outside it's trying to get me to come outside we couldn't we couldn't figure out what and he, he as soon as my mom came home and calmed him down she fi- he finally said it's zach uh me outside with um black eyes telling me to come outside, waving me to come outside, and the second that my sister interacted with him, I was gone. We, I mean, our family is not, um, not normal in the slightest. Back when we first started talking a few years ago, Shay sent me this really long email about another story her mom Jennifer told her, something she referred to as the fire triangles. She prefaced it by saying that I'll most likely question a lot of it, along with her credibility, which she respects. At the time, this story was fairly new to me, so a lot of what she wrote I did question and, frankly, found hard to believe. But now that I'm entrenched in this story, what she writes and what her mother eventually tells me aren't that far-fetched. Though I'll say I still have a difficult time believing. I'll read part of the email now, but please note I've cut out a lot of it for brevity. She starts out. In January of 1983, I had just turned 15. We had moved to the mountains, where my parents still make their home, in 1978. From my earliest memories, those mountains never felt normal. There was always an undercurrent of something hidden just under the surface, something powerful and complex, and not always, but sometimes, dangerous. Let me interrupt Shay's email a second to add some context here. Shay's parents live around the Shenandoah National Park region, with acres of forest for her to explore and the Blue Ridge Mountains practically in her backyard. Okay, back to the email. 
Stranger Things always went on there, even before the winter of 1982-1983. I suspect that these things had been going on here for a very, very long time. They certainly didn't start that winter, but that was the first time that there was any actual evidence recorded. Jennifer, Shay's mom, is a freelance outdoor writer and photographer. Part of her work was hiking in the woods and snapping photos relevant to whatever story she was working on at the time. Shay goes on to write. She struck off into the mountains to take pictures of animal tracks in newly fallen snow. She was gone much longer than she normally would be, late into the afternoon. I was home from school, and she wasn't back from the mountains yet, which didn't really make me worry, but I thought it odd. Not too much later, she came busting through the door, all excited about a set of tracks that she had found. She had followed them for miles, which was why she was so late getting back. The tracks were not identifiable as any animal that resided in our mountains. Our family hails from true mountain people that were uprooted when the parkway was installed. We come from the mountains, we know the mountains, so yes, she was positive that the tracks were made by something unknown. Here's Shay's mom, Jennifer, explaining the mysterious tracks she saw. I would just take my camera and, and, and hit the woods, hit the mountains back here. This particular place is just a very, um, we call it the Y. You walk up the up the up a road that we put in, and then it, it splits, and and the paths go one, one two different ways. And I went to the left, took the left branch of it, and I came up on these tracks. And they came from nowhere, and they left to nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it was just a long stretch of them. And I'm just standing there, and I'm, so I'm taking pictures of them and trying to figure out what in the world they are. And uh, couldn't come up with anything. So then I, I took, I was taking a bunch of other tracks because I was doing an article for Virginia Wildlife on tracks in the snow and helping people identify them. And um, so anyway, I sent that in and they published it and, and actually used, um, it was a full page color photo of that particular um, track through the, through the snows and the trees. And um same thing, you know, nobody nobody could identify it. Jennifer tells me the tracks reminder of old-fashioned biscuit cutters because the center of the track popped up like the middle of a biscuit. Here's Shay talking about the significance of these tracks. The very first actual, like, significant thing, there, there were other odd things that you just really couldn't put your finger on, you know, no proof. It was just kind of like, gosh, there's some weird stuff that goes on up here um, in these mountains. But this was when I was a kid. Um, and, but the very first thing that you could put, you could look at it and go, Hey, this doesn't belong was in January of 1983. And that's when my mom found those bizarre tracks in the snow in the mountains behind our house. And if I recall her, um, what she told us when she got back, um, from taking the pictures, they would just, they would like. They, they would go up to an object, a tree or whatever, and would stop, but just then appear on the other side. It's still in a straight line. There wasn't any evidence that, like, it went around the tree. It was just stopped on one side, started on the other. And um, being people that have always spent our lives in the mountains, we are very familiar with um, all the tracks of every indigenous animal that is up there, and these things don't match anything they look like some they they look like they're made by something on two legs there it's not four legs for certain um 
and they're this odd kind of indent, roundish indentation with what almost looks like a biscuit in the middle of it. And um, she took the pictures. We tried and tried and tried to identify it. And uh, at, the, at that time, we worked really closely with the um, Department of Game and Inland Fisheries and the game biologists and everybody. And um, the game biologists could not identify it. So it actually ended up on the cover of the magazine Virginia Wildlife. The tracks, Shay said, were never identified. What happened in the months and years that followed, Shay believes, leads up to what happened to her at Braley Pond. As, as time went on and we, we began to n- notice these, these smells, these horrible smells, it was like sewage. Um, and there were sounds and odd things happening around our houses. And, and the, the, one of the weirdest things is that before the activity really began to take place down close to the houses, we started hearing these noises screaming. It was, I can't even quite describe it. I've never heard anything like it, but it's a real, it would start out as a very high pitched, very, very loud scream that would fall um, like almost out of musical scale. It would fall down into a low guttural noise and you would hear it way up the mountain. Our, our homes are in the, right at the foothills and right at the base of the mountain, and you would hear it up the side of the mountain, and then literally 10 seconds later, you would hear it half as far away. It was impossible for a normal animal to be able to travel that fast that far, even a bird. Um, So we didn't know if there was more than one, one was talking to the other, or if if it was able to travel that fast. Growing up the mountains, Shay says she knows the sounds of bobcats and other wild animals that live around there. This was something unlike anything she'd ever heard before. As time went on, then human screaming seemed to move from up in the mountains down closer to her property. And you could always tell when it was around because even if you didn't hear it or see it, you could smell it. I mean, we would open the back door to let the dog out and it was like walking into a wall of raw sewage smell. Mm-hmm. Really, really nasty. And so we took to calling it the Wooga Duty. I don't even know where that came from, but that was that was just we didn't know what else to call it, and we started calling it the Wooga Duty. If you had a hard time understanding the name Shay and her family called this weird thing, said they started calling it the Wooga Duty. Something else Shay noticed was whatever this thing was, it always showed up in the fall, never in the warmer months of the year. It was never there in the warmer months. It only showed up in the fall. And what time of the <clears throat> what time of the fall it showed up depended on on the uh, weather activity and the temperatures. If the fall turned cool early, like in early September, it would show up then. If it was a warm fall, it wouldn't show up till the end of October, and then it would hang out all winter long. And then in the spring, it would disappear again. And it went on for years. Shay says it took the creature a really long time to get close enough so they could actually see what it was. And I had come, we had a cafe in Stanton, and um, I was coming home late from closing up the cafe one night, and it had been really, really active um, that fall and winter, and this was about midwinter, and I pulled up in the driveway, and I could see it behind the trash barrel, and it was real light-colored, <clears throat> and it was very, fairly short. The trash barrels were 50-gallon steel drums that were set up on um, concrete blocks. So the, the top of the drum came to a, about armpit level on me. I'm five foot three. 
and um, it was it wasn't crouching. It looked to be standing fairly upright, and his head was just above the, the, the drum when I came around the corner and the headlights hit it, and it screamed at me when I when I pulled into the driveway, and I just kept driving up towards the the barrel, and it I'm. I'm in the car and I can hear it screaming at me and the kids come running outside and they're like, oh my God, where is it? Where is it? Because by that time they knew what it sounded like. And um, I swear, I did not see it take off. But one second it was standing behind those trash barrels screaming at me and I could see it moving back and forth back there. And then, the, and then literally five seconds later, it seemed to be a mile away. And it was pitch black outside except for my headlights. Not too long after that, the same winter, Shay's mom, Jennifer, was driving on the back roads to get back home and saw something. And it was um, a fairly well-lit night. The, the moon was, was out, and you could see fairly well. And she was coming up one of those dirt roads toward, straight towards the mountains. And it was standing in full view on the right-hand side of the road in a field right next to the road. And she, I mean, it wasn't hiding behind anything. There was nothing to hide behind. And she saw it full on. And she, she, up to that point, she was the only one that had ever actually seen it. And she described it as being, a, <clears throat> it was like an off-white in color and uh, had this very strange shaped head. And it was about the same height as what I described, around four foot tall or so. And, um... She said that when she first saw it, she couldn't believe what she was seeing. Here's Shay's mom, Jennifer, describing what she saw. I was coming in one of the roads out here, and there's a um, off, there's a drop off on the right side. And as I drove past, there was the oddest creature standing there down in that drop off, and it had a big chest, again an elongated face. The two legs were forward um, more than like a deer or something, and the chest was just big. And I couldn't see any back legs. And I'm thinking, oh, I really didn't see that. So I turned around and went back, and of course it was gone. Now, I know it seems like I'm getting away from Logan's Shadow People Pleiadian story here, but bear with me. I'm almost to my point. There's another creature sighting Shay and her mom tell me about. My mom and I were coming home um, from a paranormal meeting with our group, with Marty's group, the Shenandoah Valley Paranormal Society. And it was in January, I remember that. Um, and I want to say it was 2004, but I don't know that for sure. I have to look and see. Um, but we were coming home and she was driving. I had ridden with her. And to get to my house, you pass her driveway and go down the road a quarter mile and then you turn into my drive. And we had slowed down and we're getting ready to turn into my driveway. And all of a sudden, in her window, in her driver's side window, it appears. Its face appears right in her window. And both of us caught the movement out of the corner of our eye, so both of us turn our head. And we were going really slow at that point because she was turning into my driveway. And it's just hanging there, staring at us. Here's Shay's mom, Jennifer. When we came back, there's this pine woods that we drive through between her house and my house and just hanging in the air on the left side in the pines was this elongated face with no body 
and I'm thinking, is that an owl sitting there? Because it was an elongated thing. And then it just went up and over the car and actually torched Shay's house. And uh, I didn't say anything because I thought, man, I haven't been getting out enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and Shay said, tell me you saw that. <laughs> I said, okay, I did see that. What the hell was it? Now back to Shay. It was very horsey looking. It had a very elongated face, which matched um, the, the description that she gave us when she saw it standing in the field. And I mean, we're, it, it didn't last but a second, but both of us got a full view of its face and it had these big eyes and this long horsey type of face. And you really couldn't see the rest of it because it's pitch black. It's like 10 o'clock at night in January. So of course, you know, the, the sun goes down early. And then all of a sudden it disappeared from her side. I mean, it didn't run. It didn't, um, it didn't run around in front of the car. It didn't walk away. It disappeared. And as it disappeared, both of us noticed that we saw, um, you know how like, <laughs> if you take like a, uh, a flashlight or something in a really, really dark room and you move the light really fast, your eyes will see the trails behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, both of us saw what looked kind of like a trail of, of, of light going upward. At first, Shay and her mom thought all of these sightings were of one mysterious being. But over time, they began seeing it more and more. And what they saw evolved from just glimpses of shadows out of the corners of their eyes to the sounds and smells Shay described earlier. And then eventually, as you've just heard, to full-on appearances. That's when Shay began to put together that it might not just be one creature that they were dealing with, but multiple. In the email I mentioned earlier in this episode... Shay describes three different entities she believes exist around the property where she grew up and lived for much of her life. Shay and Jennifer believe one of these creatures made those mysterious tracks in the mountain snow that nobody has been able to identify. It's the one they've interacted with the most over the years. Shay and Jennifer have deduced that it's nocturnal, and it's the only one that appears to be vocal, emitting a sound that, to use Shay's own words, is the stuff of nightmares. It's about four and a half feet tall and a light white grayish color. Oh, and the most important part? It also has wings and flies. The next one Shay describes is small in stature with gray skin. It moves fast, so Shay and Jennifer have never been able to get a good look at it. The third being is mostly energetic by nature. You can't see it until it moves, and when it does, it seems to dart from one place to another, distorting the background directly behind it and leaving a small whirlwind of dust, according to Shay. There is the possibility of a fourth creature that they haven't seen yet. This would be the one with the putrid smell Shay described earlier. At first, she thought the smell was coming from the winged creature, but the more she encountered it, the more she realized there was no smell coming from it. Shay notes something else about the winged being. They thought it was the creature that her son Zach described looking in the windows of their home. But Shay came to the conclusion that maybe it was there to protect her and her family rather than hurt them. She reasons that this particular creature had been around them for at least two decades, and during all that time could have caused harm if it really wanted to, but it didn't. It was always present when there was any sort of activity. What if its nightmare screaming wasn't meant to scare them, but served as a warning to them about the other creatures? Honestly, I can't tell which sounds more outlandish. Logan's interdimensional shadow people or Shay's mysterious mountain creatures that she seems to have formed some sort of bond with. I certainly am not implying either one of them is lying. I don't think that's the case. While I feel like Logan is a bit of an attention seeker, I think he really believes in most of what he's saying. Shay, on the other hand, seems incredibly sincere in what she's telling me. And though it's really hard for me to believe, I think Shay, Jennifer, and Zach are telling me the truth. 
I mean, if they're lying, that's a lot to keep up with between the three of them. So if you're open to the idea of this whole scenario, then the question arises, where in the hell did these things come from? The answer, it seems, lies deep in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Here's Shay again. So along, along about that time, we started having these weird fires up on top of the mountains behind our houses. And they would just start out of nowhere, and they would burn a whole bunch of acreage, sometimes hundreds of acres at a time. And the fire service would go up. My dad would help them, and they would get up there on top. And they, and they, I mean, and this is rugged terrain. You, you can't drive to it. So they would have to haul in all this stuff. Shay and her mom, Jennifer, refer to the area where these fires occurred as the fire triangle. Because the location of the fires form a triangle when you view it on the topo map. These fires started happening between June and September for a number of years. While they didn't appear every year, there were times when they happened much more often than others. Shay's parents were close with the forestry and park service personnel because their property sat at the foot of one of the mountains, which provided the easiest access to the fire triangles. Whenever a fire appeared, the forestry and park services would set up headquarters at their house. Shay's dad knew the mountain terrain better than most of the personnel and would always lead them up the mountain to see the location of the fires when the first wisps of smoke appeared. Sometimes they had to bring planes in and put it and dump chemicals on it to put them out. So we thought that was really weird because the fires kept starting in the same spot. And this is not occupied territory. There's nobody's up there. It's the top of a mountain that is, that you, it's just nothing there. Nobody even camps up there that I know of. So we kept thinking that that was kind of odd, um, but really didn't have any proof about it, about what, maybe where these things were starting from. You know, we kept thinking maybe lightning or whatever. In the same long email to me, Shay notes that these fires have been investigated at length by Forestry and Park Service personnel, and their findings are this. The fires were not caused by lightning or campers. In fact, Shay writes, their origin does not appear to come from the mountain surface, but underneath it. The problem with this theory, though, is that the geology of the area doesn't support it. There's no coal or other combustible natural materials below ground, Shay says. There was one forester, though, who had a theory. He said he thought there seemed to be a series of underground chimneys that the fires came out of. He also told Shay that he noticed other strange things that couldn't be accounted for. Though Shay pressed him for details, he refused because of his position with the government. But he did hint at something that, quote, didn't belong there. He basically told us that the origin of the fires was underground. There was some sort of small chimneys up there that went from ground level down. And he said, I don't know what they connect to. And I don't know why there would be fire coming out of them. Um, he said, but as far as I can tell, that's the origin of these fires that keep occurring that form the shape of this triangle. And um, so at that point, of course, we had more answers, but it, everything was just it was just more and more and more questions. In the conversation I had with Shay's mom, Jennifer, I asked her about Logan's theory of the portal at Braley Pond, expecting her to immediately dismiss it. She didn't. And to my surprise, she mentioned the strange fires on the mountains behind her house. Okay, here's my take on that. I'm, I'm <coughs> smiling to myself as you're talking about take, stealing energy, taking it back to the Shadow King. Okay, we have one of those portals here on the mountain right behind us, okay? Mm, okay. That... And, and, um, and yes, Red Cameron picked up on that real quick and said, you know, that there, that portal is there and you do have beings from other dimensions coming into that portal. In fact, she said that, um, 
that that particular area was like like if 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 that if they held conventions, that's where they held it. Red Cameron is a nationally recognized psychic who was friends with Jennifer years ago. She no longer lives in the Stanton area. I couldn't find much about her online, but I did find her Facebook page. Red doesn't seem to be that active, though. I did send her a message to see if she'd respond to an interview request, but so far I haven't heard back from her. I asked Jennifer if this portal she was referring to has to deal with the strange mountain fires behind her property. Is this the, oh, the, the fire yes. triangle? Yes. We've got, we've, we have had so many fires back here. Um, the summer after Thurman was heard and was chewed up in November, and the following spring, summer, we had three fires back here to the point where the park people, because we joined the Shenandoah National Park, they came mm-hmm. and asked if we had any enemies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's naturally occurring fires, okay? And it has to do mm-hmm. with the ore in the ground, okay? okay? Because we have that much ore in the ground, it probably does magnetically draw things into that area also. Okay. See, see what I'm saying? But yes, mm-hmm. we have a portal. I'm not going to tell you that we have uh, that these beings are coming in to steal energy and do all this um, <laughs> and take them back to the Shadow King. That does sound like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I won't go there. And I know I have a friend who who is just so convinced that these shadow people are everywhere among us. Um, I, I, I think I would feel them <laughs> mm-hmm. if they were anywhere near me, okay? And I think Shay would. I think people like us would know it. Mm-hmm. But this is television programs, okay, that, mm-hmm. that create all this mystique about the gray, the gray people, the shadow people. Okay, I don't know what you would call them. To me, they're not shadow people because I can actually see things like what we saw out here. They were not things from this world. Okay, so yes, that portal was open wide at that point. Now, as far as the portal um, at at Braley, yes, we could close the portal, but you better make sure everything is on the other side. Out of all the people I've interviewed for this podcast, Shay is the one person I've been in contact with the most. As someone who's never dabbled in New Age communities or done much beyond acupuncture or a little Tai Chi, Shay's and our mother's outlook on the paranormal, of life and existence, and the energy around us is unlike anything I've ever heard before. Unlike paranormal investigators who might be looking for ghosts in particular, or UFOs or Bigfoot, Shay is taking all of these phenomena into account, because to her, it's all connected. And so when you start looking at all this stuff, you start looking at... If people want to take all of these events and they want to compartmentalize them. They want to define um, demon activity as one thing, and they want to define ghost activity as another thing, and they want to put Bigfoot in another category, and they want to put um, visitations and uh, by extraterrestrials in another category. And by definition, based on perception, yes, you certainly could do that. But if you get underneath of it, if you get underneath of all that and you look at it for what it is, there is that common thread of energetic connectivity between all of it. Mm-hmm. That's the basis of it. So what does that mean exactly? What's Shay trying to say? That everything we know about urban legends, from the Mothman, Bigfoot, and Jersey Devil to ghosts and UFOs are all the same? Do we compartmentalize these things because of the way we perceive them? 
If that's the case, what does that say about the possibility of life on other planets, or our reality? It's a lot to wrap my brain around, but I know this much. Not only do I now want to know more about these shadow people or Pleiadians, but I also want to find out more about these supposed portals. I've got a few ideas of who I can contact. What Happened at Rayleigh Pond is produced by me, Charlie Moss. The exceptional Bill Colrus is our story editor. Our music and sound design are by the legendary Mike Triplecock. Our website, which can be found at www.braileypondpodcast.com, was created by the outstanding Ashton Lance. Our podcast logo was designed by the phenomenal Shelton Brown. Additional artwork is by the incredibly patient Keith Finch. Special thanks to Monty Brock for his scientific insight and my wife, Vanessa, who was overwhelmingly supportive during this three-year process. Mm-hmm.